Hi, I'm Bethany Dawson and this is My Classic Soul. This week we continue our trip to Los Angeles early this year with soulmusic.com founder David Nathan. David caught up with friend of the podcast Ron Bowers, an A&R specialist for years with various major labels. On today's episode, Duran takes David for a walk down memory lane as he learns how David got his start in music journalism, interviewing artists such as Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross and many, 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 many more. We'll also learn how both David and Duran developed their love of soul music. So let's join them from now, direct from Los Angeles. So David, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying the... The L.A. sunshine. <laughs> yeah, is, is the conversation of our first conversation just, hey, my name's Duran, mm-hmm. hi, my name's David, and the way it just took off from there was one of the best conversations I think I've had since I've been in this industry of someone who has the knowledge of the music that I not only grew up with, but I work in and a lot of the artists that I'm now working with. So... Mm. I thank you for your presence and just being so open. Well, thank you. And, and it was it was a great conversation. This is we're referring to a conversation we had yesterday. Yes. Um, and it was a, a engaging for me too. You know, I, I really find, uh, in particular, when I'm when I'm talking with people of a different generation, for whom the artists that were part of my um, my life as a as a professional music journalist those are the artists that they grew up on so it's because i had the artists i grew up on and then as we were talking you know obviously it became apparent that uh some of the people we were talking about were the were the equivalent your equivalent of my arethas and my otis and right. my you know supremes and i mean we could actually almost put people who we could say they were the continuation of that so so it was really great I, I love that opportunity because it really uh, reminds me of how many people have continued the tradition and have really been they they were your like I say your equivalent of those people who were my my heroes yes and she heroes as they think sometimes <laughs> say yeah it was you you nailed it on the head it was one of those things where Every generation says, oh, my generation, when my generation, I wouldn't go down or, oh, that's not a real singer. My generation had the greatest singer and it, it was so much different. We had bands and you guys didn't have bands. And I think that conversation, which was not intentional, showed that when done right and when certain artists or certain things are given the opportunity, carries it over in the best way. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and, and as we, as we talk, you know, today we can talk about some of the those artists and their lineage, their lineage, and how how they were the continuation of those traditions, but also how they established their own uh, presence and their own sound. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, just as an aside, you know, uh, I, I about um, two months ago. Uh, I went to a birthday celebration or a friend of mine's birthday in London and invited me to um, an 80s uh, dance event for his birthday. And my initial reaction was 80s. Oh, man. And I thought, and then I you know, went and I was like, oh, I forgot about all this great music <laughs> yes. of the 80s. It kind of gets... 
by people of my generation sometimes and other generations kind of get dismissed as, you know, very synthesized and very, you know, not real music. Like exactly, you know, you know, that we weren't real bands. And by lumping it all together like that, we forget you know, the trendsetters and, and, and the, the groups and, and solo artists who really did create their own sound that has now impacted a whole nother generation and a whole nother uh, decade. Yeah, I, man, so again, I thank you. You're welcome. I like to take it to, <laughs> yes. let's take it to the beginning of the professional for you mm-hmm. of um, how you got in and how mm. your regular just fan love turned into a professional love that turned into a legendary career. The beginning of that. Okay. All right. I'm just smiling about the legendary career. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I didn't, you know, I, it's, you know, it's really, um, I'd like to think of what I've accomplished in life as the expression of doing something I love, first thing, and, and really expression, expression of a passion. And so how it really began, it was very organic. It wasn't, I did not have like, oh, you know, I'm going to work in music. I'm going to be a music journalist. I'm going to meet all these people. It was nothing like that. In fact, you know, I had a different career path that I was going to go down, which was the which probably wouldn't have gone so well now. I think about how the world's now. So I wanted to be a diplomat. Mm. And uh, anyway, since music is a universal language, and I somehow along the way acquired the the, the nickname British Ambassador of Soul, mm-hmm. I figured I, I kind of was able to do both. But I digress slightly to go back to what you said. So the, my passion for um, R&B as it be- and then became soul music really um you know had its roots in in me you know being in school in in London and um you know the first artist that really captured my imagination so to speak was Dionne Warwick right, okay. who a lot of times people would say well she's not really a R&B singer but uh, you know you don't have everyone doesn't have to sound like you know a get down from the church gritty even though she did come from there right you know grit exactly and the thing that i loved of course was the soulfulness in dion's recordings early in the mid 60s and that led me to listening and loving the work of nina simone for whom i started the first fan club in 1965 so it's all still in school and then aretha followed from that and, you know, then the whole world, and, but, but it was never like, oh, I'm going to do, the, I'm going to write about this for a living. I really started writing for a, a fat, one of the fan magazines in London, which was called um, uh, Rhythm and Soul USA. Okay. Uh, and that uh, led to me writing for Blues and Soul. Um, and uh, I just, mo- at that point, would do concert reviews. I wouldn't really be doing, like, straight up interviews so I only started really doing interviews with people in the kind of late 60s actually I don't think it was late 60s actually I'll tell you the first my first cover story was really my first I would say interview but it wasn't a scheduled interview mm-hmm. what it was uh, Aretha as in Franklin right was in England and I had previously interacted with her before she signed with Atlantic 
And so we had already, and she'd been to England in 68, and I took my mom and my sisters to see her. And, you know, so we had a personal rapport. And so when she came to England in 1970, um, I um, was in touch with her and, and went to see her on Top of the Pops, which was a, as it was, of course, back then, a very popular British TV show. And she sang Don't Play That Song, I oh, remember, at the yes. piano. And I was went into you know to talk to her in the dressing room and um yeah we were just talking about what she was up to she had just she just had, had given birth earlier that year we just had a chat we were just talking it wasn't like this is going to be an interview and then i called the editor of blues and soul and said john i know you have john abbey i said is aretha doing any interviews with anyone and he said well no she's not doing any press i said well i did have a conversation with her and you know you know, she didn't talk about too much personal. It was like about how her career was going and, you know, the fact she had had, you know, talk about the fact she just had given birth. But, but we also talked about what she was working on, which was an album called Spirit in the Dark. And mm -hmm. We just were talking, you know. Right. I said, could I, could I turn that into a, an article with quotes? And he said, absolutely. He was thrilled because I'm, man, you know, Aretha's not doing any press, you know, at that time in England, so that would be brilliant. So that became my first... Uh, cover story for Blues and Soul. So then I was like, okay, I like doing this. That's uh, the uh, best uh, way to jump <laughs> off because that was that was the beginning of Aretha going from strictly kind of kind of women anthems into a real deep black soul era. Absolutely, and that that was the beginning. Spear in the Dark was the beginning, oh, and yeah. she went for everything after that and for you to not only have that as your first cover story <laughs> you were right there at the beginning of what ended up being her period james brown period mm -hmm. we ended up getting earth wind and fire out of that period yeah. so oh, you, wow. you and aretha yeah. kind of were at the beginning of that period yeah, yeah. So, so to fast forward it you know then i i was living you know living in london and and doing more writing for blues and soul and then on a momentous occasion in October of 1974, um, my, at that point, former flatmate, here you call roommate, from London, Gary, uh, had gone to New York, um, supposedly on holiday, and ended up staying. And <laughs> so he said to me, you, you, you should come over here for a holiday and blah, blah, blah. So I went over in October of 1974, New York, and the first week, I hated it. I just was like, oh, this place is awful, blah, 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 blah. The second week, I was like, oh, actually, this is really cool because John, Abby, has said to me, well, while you're in New York, you might as well do some interviews. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. So set up with to do three interviews. Hmm. Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson yes. were my first. Okay. And I was like, oh, man. You know, I was, I was at their, house, their townhouse in Manhattan. I couldn't believe it. And, and Valerie was pregnant. And she, you know, I remember she wasn't very talkative. And I commented after, I said, you know, uh, you don't like doing interviews much. You see, not really. You know, Nick does a lot of talk. So that was Nick, Nick and Val. And then the second one was um, LaBelle, the group LaBelle. At oh. that point, they were just breaking through with Lady Marmalade. And so that was all happening. And, Got you. And the third one was the uh, the unforgettable and unlike anyone else millie jackson <laughs> <laughs> yes so, she's talkative yeah oh she's yeah bipolar opposite uh, of, uh, of valerie yeah, yeah very very um um uh what would you say uh 
some expl- expletives, <laughs> you know, which we're not going to repeat right now. But right. but I did get a little lost going to to fight to to the. On, on, on the subway system, and you know, so I called her from the you know, because she had phone booths with no mobiles. I called her from the phone booth and said, Hello, Miss Jackson, very British voice. Miss Jackson, I, I, um, I think I got on the wrong train. And she said, Where the are you? I'm like, I, I don't really know. I'm on the D. So well, you've gone on the wrong train. Get it, get on the train, other state, other platform. I'm like, All right. So I come out of the, the subway station. And it's really clear when I step out that I there are not many people who look like me. <laughs> was in the area you were in, yes, sir. At that time. And uh, even though I had lots of curly hair, it was still like, oh. Because I cl- clearly know where I was. I mean, I got out and she t- she said, oh, you go up there. And anyway. So that was my first interview. You know, Millie, uh, Millie Nick and Val and, 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 and LaBelle, the group, you know, Patty, Nona and Sarah. So that after that. And I went to see Aretha and 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 uh, Blue Magic at Radio City Music Hall, and then I was like, I gotta come back. That's it. I mean, I love London. I, my family's still there, and but my social circle was kind of like I've been hanging out with the same people all the time. You know how that happens. You kind of yes. You, you, you kind of at some point you kind of outgrow your social circle. Yes, especially with your interest in yeah. what you really want to do. Like even if even if they're lawyers, if you mm-hmm. have this interest in this passion and this and it's paying you and it's your actual profession right you quickly outgrow your friends or your circle because your interests are just different yeah. and their questions start to be um kind of kind of kind of nervous and, and yeah. nerve-wracking yeah. and you kind of want to hang around the same people the same circle so I, I do get that yes so then um I, I i just told everyone well i'm going back to new york and they said what are you going to do i said i'm going to write they said, who are you going to write for? I said, I don't know. I'm going to see if the Blues is yeah, And Blues is will let me do that. And I had to beg John Abbey, the editor, you know, can I please go like on a trial basis to see how it goes? He finally gave in about three weeks before I left and said, all right, we'll give you three months, see what you do. You've got to produce lots of, lots of interviews. You've got to do a lot of writing for me to justify paying you in New York because... You're actually more valuable to me in London. But I was like, all right. And that, it was like a challenge. Like he threw down the gauntlet, said, all right, let's see what you can do. And I was like nonstop interviewing everybody. And I, Doran, I thought I had, I, 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 I was like this, well, you know, that expression, kid in the candy store. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe, I was like, oh, man, it's unbelievable. Then I was living in Midtown Manhattan, going to all these shows. And then, see, the thing that was really amazing was that for all the record companies uh, at that time um, is when the, a lot of what they called the black music divisions were were really starting to emerge. So, right. at, you know, at Columbia, Epic, um, you know, uh, the Arista was kind of new, and then Atlantic was the amazing publicist at Atlantic, Barbara Harris, who was such a great, like, supporter of what I was doing. She's the one who set me up to go see Aretha Radio City Music Hall the previous time I was there. And just, you know, people were really championed. They, they, the fact that they had someone on the spot in New York who representing an international publication, you know, a British magazine dedicated to soul music, that it was like I was a gift. I was, in a sense, a gift to them too because they then got to expand right. the interest in soul music and their their artists in in Britain in particular and so it was like a mutual exchange in that respect and we 
and and because you know, I was going to all the things I'd never done in London, I was going to all the you know the the press parties and the you know there's just so many great memories of that time, and and I was getting paid for it. Right. I was like, oh, I can't, you know, it was like that. And I met some, you know, just like so many of what we would call the legends, you know, Curtis Mayfield. Of course, I did some Aretha interviews then, and and just you know people that I I just never imagined that I would actually get to interview. So a lot of great history from that. And then after the three months, John said, well, yeah, you're doing all right. So, so then the three, three months actually turned into ultimately 34 years. Not all in New York, but right. yeah, so that was really the beginning. So that was the beginning of your journey. Yeah, and it really was that when I wrote, I, I considered that my mission in a sense, as as a music journalist, um, specializing in this particular area of music that was so so much a part of my own tapestry of of my own personal life and what I, you know, it was the music I went to for my own comfort and and salvation and support and it you know spoke to my soul you know kind of not surprising given that it's called soul music right, right? and and you know there was already this deep appreciation of of soul music in Britain that had already begun developing. And I saw my mission, so to speak, as someone who could introduce what were then new artists who then subsequently became part of our of the whole tradition of soul music, um, emerging artists, to, to the audiences in Britain uh, by virtue of writing about them. Because Blues and Soul was like the major magazine and people would read and, and it's like, oh, and many times... Years later, people tell me, I never, you know, you were the, your interviews gave me my introduction to Luther Vandross and to, you know, Randy Crawford and Al Jarreau and just all the people that I interviewed at that time were just beginning their careers. And that's how people got in Britain got to find out about them. You mentioned Earth, Wind and Fire, who played such a major role in my own personal life. I mean, so... So it was like I got to be this conduit through which I got to share my love for the music and these artists with the readers in in Britain. Let me ask you this. International, because of the Internet, because of social media um, and because of the streaming era, music that used to be regional, um, certain genres stayed either regional or um, Latino, um, the Latin explosion stayed with um, Latin people. Um, Soul music, hip-hop, which is black music, stayed with black people. With the internet, that's now a international thing where um, you can put out a record now of, let's say, a Lizzo, and it may actually hit in Australia before it does here. Mm -hmm. But it seems like and one thing I've always noticed just researching in history and going through things in the UK, in London, the appreciation for black music, whether it be soul and even today with hip hop. I know a lot of hip hop acts that um, were real big in the 80s and 90s and they have real strong touring in London. Absolutely. What was it that spoke so much about 
soul music? What is it that, and, and I know it comes from, let's say, let's go back to going into Led Zeppelin doing blues music and Rolling Stones doing blues music, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but evolving into rock. It seemed like in the 70s when soul music was at its at its peak and in its pioneering golden, state. One of the golden ages. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. guys have taken that and it's still to this day yeah. something. What was it so much that got to that? Before now, everyone gets it. But then, as regional as it was then, London got a hold to it and just stayed on it. And I can say it's a true second country of soul music. How? Why is that? That's a really, that is a brilliant question, Doran. It's a brilliant question. And it, it isn't something that people ask very often. Um, and, and so a couple of things I want to say. So firstly, to correct it, because I know that we, we the podcast will be heard by people all over yes. the world. It, it, it wasn't just England or London. It was the whole of Britain. The whole and, of Britain, yes. And, and you know, play other places in Europe that developed a, a, a real appreciation for the music too. And Britain has always I think has had the strongest connection with uh, R&B and soul music. Um, it really predates me, honestly. Uh, I mean, you, you just made a reference to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And in fact, they were, by virtue of doing cover versions of particularly Motown songs of the 60s and, and other, you know, by other artists. I mean, certainly um, the Rolling Stones, you know, Muddy water. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and so the tradition of appreciation, oh, that's an interesting phrase. The tradition of appreciation. Wow. <laughs> you never think I was a writer, would you? Anyway, <laughs> but tradition of appreciation, I don't really know where, I, I mean, there people have tried to study that. I think the closest thing I can tell you about it um, from my like, like real life experience is that, you know, the Britain of the, 50s and 60s was very much a structured class structured society what i mean by that you know there was the upper class the people you know the kind of you know really landowners and you know that was the the the, the people who were born into money and so on and title and then there was the emerging middle class and then there was the working class which is not you know while it might have changed in some ways, you know, that was the, that was kind of, but it was very structured in Britain, very structured. And even the idea of a, someone from a working class background going to a, you know, university, a certain kind of university like Oxford or Cambridge was kind of almost like, wow, very unheard of. So I think that what there was, uh, without doing a psychological study of it, I think it was the kind of, in a sense, there was a sense of opp- oppression and, and and like we we like we had a, there was a lid on what we could do as working class kids, and I think that you know if you if you hear like the Beatles and Rolling Stones talk about that, you know for them too because they're all part of the same thing. You don't right. he, you don't hear really many quote middle class kids who were born who who heard the blues or could even relate to the blues. Right. You know, so I think that was it. And I think there was also a long, there was a, a, a tradition of love for jazz music in, in Britain. Uh, you know, a lot of people, like I think even, for example, Billie Holiday was really appreciated in Europe in a way that people didn't, they didn't focus so much on her, you know, whatever was true about her personal life with drugs and so on. It was about that they loved her singing. Ella yes. Fitzgerald, you know, people, there was an, already an appreciation of jazz. And then it became... You know, appreciation of 
appreciation some to some degree of gospel, Mahalia yes. Jackson. And and I think it had I my personal feeling is it has roots in that whole class system of like us feeling like we, you know, growing up we couldn't you know, you know, we we were kind of told stay in your place. You know, you you know, you know, you know, you you're supposed to just be a working class person. You know, just you know, you, you know. I think you can relate to what I'm talking I can't, about. I can't. I'm, I'm more really probably from a, ra- a from a from a from more of a racial standpoint in this country. Now, I'm also going to say that that was also true in Britain, and because um, we had a whole. Um, part of the population, not a big part at that point, of people being um, Caribbean, African immigrants from countries that had been um, colonized by Britain that were invited to, in a sense, invited to Britain to help rebuild it after the war. So there's that also segment of the population that embraced R&B and soul music. So you've got these different groups. But I mean, if you went to a club in like 1967 or 68, you were going to see, you know, regular working people. You were going to see, you know, wasn't going to be like, you know, I, I can't really make a reference to who else wasn't there. I just thought that was the people who went, you know, and you saved your money and you went to the concert. I remember having to ask my parents for money to buy records. I mean, like I had some. Gotcha. So it was that whole thing. And there was just, but there was something in the music. It was like, it, it was something in the vo- in people's voices, the kind of like you could identify with, I, I don't want to say pain because not all soul music is painful, but it was also the joy kind of, I could break it out into a maze record there, couldn't I? It was it was a validity <laughs> yeah. in in what they were singing about, whether it been love, whether it been having a good yeah. time, yeah. whether it been about pain, whether it been about oppression, whatever it is that was sung, it was sung from a true place. And yeah. that is what soul music is. And it, that's why every time someone says soul, they always point to their stomach. Yeah. They always point to their gut because yeah. that's where you had to not only sing from but sometimes when you go through things and you have to suppress it, it's so deep and so low mm-hmm. that you sing it from the soul. So that's where I think no matter where you're from or who you are, a lot of experiences are the same. Yeah. And when you hear something, you could feel it. You can feel what that is and it translates. And then when I was younger, I used to always... I. I became a Beatles fan in college and I was always like, well, (laughs) the Beatles, but every time I saw the interviews, they always mentioned jazz and blues artists and they just had this love for Aretha and all the early soul music. And I'm like, well, how and why is that? And as I got older, I started to see that it all bridged, which brings me to the next point. Yeah. So with Aretha um, being the queen of soul for Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons, because she basically took that, became the queen, and then she took it into the 70s, kind of evolved it and became a queen of that. Then um, this great thing called disco came (laughs) and paused. It paused the movement. It didn't stop it. It didn't wreck it. It paused it. And as it went into the 80s, Aretha did her thing in the 80s and she, she did what she had to do, but her inspiration went into... The next era, mm-hmm. which was the Anita Bakers, mm-hmm. which was the Luther Vandross, mm-hmm. which was a little later the Keith Sweats, yeah, which yeah. was definitely a group that was big in the 70s. The OJs, they literally birthed Levert. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Absolutely. When you were covering and you ended up having a three-month stay going into a 34-year journey, <laughs> and you were there in New yeah. York and yeah. in L.A., just different places in that disco mm-hmm. era, mm-hmm. and you saw what it was turning into, what was your thoughts when it went from disco to this kind of new wave soul? Well, I'd like to say a couple of things. Firstly, you, we want to recognize that the main um, component, the mo- main um, um, artists associated with what people call uh, disco were also came from the tradition of R&B. So we're talking about, if I talk about disco, you know, there's certain names that come up right away, like Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer and the group First Choice and BT Express and even Average White Band. I mean, you know, these are are your R&B groups. And and, and of course, Chic. Chic. I mean, come on, you know, late 70s. I mean, these are are the proponents. These are the pioneers. These are the leaders of the, what we call disco movement. Really what it was, it, I mean, it was called disco. But really, it was just dance. It was dance music was dance that music. then became disco. That I mean, was played in disco, exactly. exactly. And and so you know, uh, I mean, in, in London, you know, just before I went to live, in like I remember seventy four, it was when we used to go to to what were called discos in London too, and but then I remember certain records like you know, uh, First Choice. I don't know why, for some reason, that record always remains in my thinking. A record called Armed and Extremely Dangerous. <laughs> and, um, you know, they had another record called Smarty Pants. But there was all, it was, but the point being that, that um, they were the pioneers of, of, of the music. And they all, many of them had the backgrounds in gospel and R&B. So I, I didn't think it was like, oh, that's going to push disco aside. It was more kind of like, I mean, the disco is going to push the R and B aside. Right. Uh, it was kind of like for me, it was all the. It was a go, a golden age. You said the seventies was golden age. I mean, I think about the, you know, Boogie Wonderland with Earth, Wind and Fire and the Emotions. I yes. mean, that's like hello. That is that is you could say is disco, but it's you know you listen to Maurice singing and you listen to the emotions and all. I mean, it's come on, it's it's R and B. Yes. That we gave a convenient name called disco. hundred percent. To make it even more marketable. Um, so I think that I, di- I didn't really think of it as like, oh, and, and then there were certain artists who were, you know, you, you could say that did not quite, you didn't want to say make transition. They, did, they weren't, they didn't adapt to the dance music disco craze, so right. to speak. Some mm-hmm. did and many, many did, but some, they just, it didn't really translate for them and, and, and they found their record sales plummeting and they weren't quite as, you know, accepted and, and they didn't compromise. So they, they kind of got shunted to the side, so to speak. But many of those artists that we, we think of like as the, 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 you know, the, the kind of the ones who've continued on and continued into the 80s, and, and began in the 80s, you know, um, I didn't think of it as like, oh, well, disco is kind of now we can't have any real R&B because some of, some of it was real was R&B anyway, really. Yes. I mean, I'm thinking like just as I'm just going through my head, I'm thinking like Patrice Russian, you know, forget me nots. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's a dance record. I loved it. You know, but it's a really it's an, it's a, an R&B jam. I mean, I, you know. Patrice Russian didn't suffer yes. by, you know what I'm saying? So it wasn't really for me that um, did it separate. It was a continuation. And then, you know, to your point about the 80s, I mean, you know, uh, you, you mentioned about Levert and the OJs. I mean, that's like 
absolute continuation of those harmonies. I mean, as you said, of course, you know, Levert being the 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 the, the children of the of Eddie Levert. I mean, right. you know, the, and so I think that. Um, you know, as as disco began to not be quite as marketable using that term, you know, then we get the emergence of some of the people you just mentioned, you know, Levert, Anita Baker. You know, I don't know if you know um, that who Anita Baker uh, uh, attributes her success to or her, I say success, her emergence as a quote mainstream artist. You know, do you know who she says inspired her? I don't. It's going to be a real surprise for you then. <laughs> yeah, probably not for everyone. I mean, in the first interview I ever did with Anita Baker, which was around the release of, um, it was after the songstress. Mm -hmm. It was uh, just before the release of Rapture. Um, I'll tell you a little funny aside in a moment. But, uh, uh, you know, she, and when the record started to really take off, she said that the artist or group that had really paved the way for her to be able to have Rapture be successful was Sade. Wow. And it's in print. I mean, you can see it from that time period. She said, which Sade's like opened the door for her, for Anita's music to be really accepted and played. So it's kind of an interesting, like, full it's circle very thing. Very interesting, yeah. yeah. And, and, and then, but I, I will tell you just a funny little. Anita story, if I may. Uh, so when I, my first interview with her, I went up to, I was living in Los Angeles at that point, and I went up to the uh, uh, Electra offices, and um, I remember, I think it was at that point in the same building as the Atlantic offices in on Sunset Boulevard, if I remember correctly. So I'm waiting, you know, and the, the person, you know, so I'm here to do an interview with Anita Baker. They said, okay. And... Um, I said, well, go, you know, just wait in this room. And this woman walked in the room, and, and, and um, she said, hello. I said, hello. I said, she said, oh, oh, she, what are you here for? I said, I'm here to interview Anita Baker. And she said, and I thought she was like a secretary, or so I don't know who she was, the one who walked in, because I didn't, I had this picture of what Anita Baker I thought would look like. Because I'd, I'd only seen a picture of her on an album cover. I'd never seen her perform or anything. So I was expecting, and I told her this in, as, at the first thing I said. She said, well, I'm Anita. I said, I, I said, uh, you're Anita? I said, well, I, was ex I, said, well, I don't know if you're rude, but I was expecting this, like, really big, you know, because of your voice, you know, on songstress. I was, I was expecting this. She just laughed. And she said, no, I'm just a little, you know, little bitty person. <laughs> and it was just really funny and I was like what well, where does that voice come from I mean you know so you know meaning like because she's not a physically Very big person voice, yeah. yeah and so that was my you know so that, that was my little Anita Baker aside <laughs> but you know that music again was following a tradition um you know and of course as you know Anita and, and, and those artists of the eight that began really making uh, uh really making their presence felt will all tell you that their who they listened to were the artists of the 60s and 70s were the same people that I listened to, even gotcha. though we might have been a slight age difference between us. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so it, it was kind of a continue. What I love about a lot of those 80s artists is that they kept the tradition going in their own way and, um, you know, created their own set of audiences that, but they were still drawing on those traditions 
of the 60s and 70s. Like, for example, the Harmony Group, like say, Levert, that's yes. a great example. And then Anita continuing the tradition of, uh, I would say, kind of jazz and soul. Nancy Wilson, who's one of her absolute favorites, you know, right. that's, that's a good example. And so, you know, you can see that you can see the lineage and see how it continued and continued. Now, one thing that was interesting to me was your start at BRE. Uh-huh. And the reason that's interesting to me is because BRE was the first music magazine that I saw cover black music. Okay. And um, that was big for me in my in the beginning of my I want to be an industry thing, which which is crazy. That started for me at nine. And really? Yes. It, well, it can you, before we go on, you just have to say a little bit about that because you can't say you can't drop that without well, saying giving us, give us a little bit of a background. On well, that. when when I was coming up, um, I had a cousin named Casual Cal Dupree. Okay. And he started off doing college radio at um, Morehouse when he was at Morehouse, mm -hmm. and he started in real radio in um, New York and in Atlanta. And he ended up connecting with um, early Russell Simmons, who was mm -hmm. pushing a Curtis Blow the Breaks mm -hmm. record. Yeah, and yeah. he would come to my mom is his cousin's best friend. He would when he come to L.A., he would bring her 12 inches yeah. and he brought her to 12 inch. I remember him bringing a 12 inch of the Breaks, And I'll never forget <laughs> the label, um, the Mercury label had to build in with the uh -huh, little circle. Uh -huh. I remember to this day. Yeah. And he would play those records and then. Every time he would come, especially if something was going on in L.A., he would, you know, have passes for us to go. Wow. And um, I went to, it was either a concert or convention, and they had magazines all over the place. And Luther Vandross was on the cover of BRE. Yes. And yes. I picked it up, and I just, I was, you know, I saw Luther Vandross on the cover, which mm -hmm. was one of the first times that I saw an artist that wasn't such a big, that wasn't Michael Jackson, Prince, or Whitney Houston on the cover of a magazine. Absolutely. And I'm reading it, and I'm, I see BRE had no idea what that meant for years. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking, and it's more artists like Luther. And then I'm starting to see LL Cool J, and then I start looking at these radio charts and seeing all these things. And that was my first time really like, oh, there's music magazines. Mm -hmm. And um, as time went on, there was hits and all these different things, right on all these different things. But right on was more of a fanzine That's as right. BRE was an industry magazine. Correct. And um, as I was looking at Billboard at nine years old, looking wow. at credits and everything, wow. I didn't know 100% uh -huh. that what I wanted to do because I was in band and stuff in school and violin mm -hmm. and things like that, but I knew that I loved the number game. I loved to see certain writers get credits, what positions and all those things. And it was magazines like BRE that taught me that. Wow. And, and, and I was going all through elementary and middle school and high school mm -hmm. with this industry knowledge, not knowing that it was industry knowledge. Yeah. And what I found out um, from BRE, getting into your history, is your history of BRE. Yeah. And you... Not only were you a part of the history, but you made history with BRE. Tell us how you made history with BRE. Well. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, for, and let us know what BRE meant, that, that acronym, yeah. and then why was it so historic for you to be there? Yeah, well, that, by the way, thank you for sharing that. It was really <laughs> great. It was really great. Um, well, black, BRE stands for Black Radio Exclusive, and it really was an industry um, um, Ma magazine that was really about, of course, uh, 
black radio and, and all the DJs and the programmers. And it was really, uh, it, it had, of course, all the charts from different radio stations. And it was really kind of a, a way for uh, to keep all the stations aware of, you know, who was coming out and interviews and stuff like that. So Sidney Miller was the publisher and the, and, and the founder of BRE. And um, I'm trying to remember the circumstances of how I do. Yeah, I do remember now. Okay, so I had been, I moved to, I'd moved to LA in 1984, um, and in 1985, I started to freelance because I'd been writing for Blues and Soul all the time, and I continued to do that. And I think, but there was a little period of time when we had, Blues and Soul had, and I had a little divorce for a short time, we made up. But but in that in the in the in the divorce period. Um, or separation, I should say, is when I started freelance because I had to earn a living, you know, and Blues and Soul had been my primary, you know, how I got paid. And right. I wasn't really doing any freelance work up until then at all. I just was a Blues and Soul correspondent, first in New York, then a little bit in L.A., and then in New York, and then in L.A., and then all of a sudden I didn't have a job. So I was like, oopsie, and um, what am I going to do? And so I started to, you know, do some freelance. I can't remember the first freelance assignment. Oh, yeah, I do remember the first freelance assignment I ever got. Again, was Aretha. When her album, uh, Who's Zoom and Who, came out. Yes. And she was on Arista. And I ended up going to Detroit and doing an interview with her in, in Bloomfield Hills in her home there. And um, so she gave me that, gave me my first... USA Today cover story, oh, my man. first uh, interview uh, that got published in Tower Records Pulse, yes, and I USA Today, I mean, all those things. I mean, I was, so, so in other words, Aretha was, again, like the kind of the catalyst for me starting to establish myself as a freelance journalist. Gotcha. So that was that. And so then as I'm living in L.A., you know, I, I, at some point, and I can't remember the exact moment in time, but. I started, you know, sharing with people, you know, I'm available to write bios. I can, you know, do all the, you know, I, you know, I, I wanted, I had to earn a living, you know, and without blues and soul, you know, I was kind of like, okay, I had a hustle, you know, and, and I can't remember who, I'm trying to remember who actually suggested that I ask um, Sidney Miller, you know, for, if I could do some writing. I, I'm trying to, I, I'm thinking it might have been, it might have been one of the other journalists who lived in, in, in Los Angeles, Steve Ivory, who'd written for a lot of stuff. And or it, uh, whoever it was, I uh, introduced me to Sidney Miller. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't a little bit of like, OK, he, he, you know, <laughs> of course, no one can see us because we talk, you and I are talking. Right. They can't see my photograph, but I'm sure if they go online, they will somewhere and see that, uh, you know, I was, um, I'm not African-American. So it yes. was a bit of a something for him to, I mean, he, I don't think he was, I don't think he had a thing about it, but I don't think he had a concern that people might, you know, who didn't know my work and because they didn't necessarily know about all my work with blues. And so I was like, well, you know, what's he doing here? 
And there was a little bit of that. Territorial thing, yeah. yeah. It goes back to the not yeah. only territorial thing but regional thing, where yeah. it was very, it was a very regional thing where mm-hmm. black music was black music, pop music was pop yeah. music, and MTV and mm-hmm. things like that started to open the gate. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, it took a little minute, but but. You know, I started. I remember I had a couple of different series in BRE. One was called Star Talking, Mm-mm. and the other one, I can't remember what another one was called. We had one which was for brand new artists, and they and I could only write like about five hundred words about them. I couldn't do like long pieces. Right. And I remember that one of those BRE assignments was Keith Sweat. I really, I remember that vividly, mm. and uh, you know, uh, you know, I remember that Keith at that time you know, was, had been a stockbroker. He had a lot of experience of doing interviews, so he wasn't very, he was he was all right, but he wasn't very, you know, I don't think he was, I think he was nervous and, and, and not comfortable initially with doing interviews. So I remember that. So there were several firsts of interviews I did only for, B, for BRE that were part of the Star Talking or the other column, I have to look up the name of it. But, you know, so there was those for the new artists, and then there was another section I would do pieces, which was for the more established artists. And, um, you know, after a while, I you know, was doing it on a quite regular basis. And at some point, um, I started doing stuff for Billboard. Uh, again, Aretha was my, was my uh, in 88, was my first Billboard story on Aretha when she recorded, I'm sorry, 87, when she recorded um, uh, a gospel album at her father's church in, in, in Detroit, New Bethel Baptist Church, mm-hmm. for Arista called One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. Yes. And that provided me with my first story, Nelson George, the editor, the R&B editor at the yes, Billboard at the time. The legendary Nelson. Yes, yes, indeed. Gave me my first shot at doing a Billboard story. And then at some point I was writing for Billboard and BRE. And sometimes a bit of conflict because if I were doing the same interview, I might kind of rewrite it for it would maybe a billboard assignment that I would not moonlight, but turn it into a a, 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 a BRE story too. I remember Stephanie Mills; that was one of those <laughs> kind of memories of different things. So that was really it. And and then um, you know, it was just really I felt very um, what's the right word. There was kind of like an acceptance, like 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 a, I felt very um, a, a, a very appreciative of being included and accepted um, into the kind of body of the of, of the black press in in in, in Los, Los Angeles, where I had been in New York, and and so it was cool. And there was I think the one of the people that I, I would want to mention, who was one of my real um, champions, and kind of I think of her as my godmother in soul music journalism uh, is a lady called Regina Jones who started a, a, a newspaper with her then husband back in the late 60s uh, called Soul, uh, Soul newspaper and she uh, still, you know, she and I still in touch and, you know, she was kind of like my godmother in a sense my my music journalist godmother, so to speak and so so people were very you know, and, and to be fair I mean, I was very I had also built a reputation for being, for when some, I did an interview with someone, I would take down what they said. I wouldn't change it and give my spin on what they said. I mean, of course, I don't, you know, do an article, you can't, you know, but I, but I was always, um, you know, true to what people, I, I, when I did an interview, I faithfully recreated what they said. I took notes back then. Sometimes at some point got to cassettes. Um, and, and so, and then, 
people recognize that my appreciation for the music was what was really behind what I was doing. I mean, if anyone ever thought of being a music journalist and thought that they would get rich, uh, you know, if you're going to be rich in the music industry, music journalism, as, <laughs> as all my many colleagues, you know, Scott Galloway, Janine Coveney, all the different people who, you know, Steve Ivory, and all the people who were part of my, you know, my contemporaries as well, um, you know, we'll all tell you that was not the way to, to get rich. You know, you kind of like a low person on the totem pole of, of all the wealth of the music industry. <laughs> so it was driven by, um, you know, my passion for, for the art and the music. And it wasn't driven by, you know, some thought that, you know, maybe, you know, I've hit the jackpot. My dad wasn't very happy about it. He said, why didn't you go get a record job? Why didn't you get a job at a record company? <laughs> I said, because I have to stay true to my integrity and I don't want to, you know, that's not, you know, that will work for me. He's like, well, you're going to miss out all this money. I'm like, well, I know, but, you know, <laughs> you know how fathers and mothers are about their children. Yes. And I was still, you know, young adult. Well, an adult. I got you. That's I think all, yeah. what it, what happened, and it happens now, um, whether it be in journalism, whether it be in music with your John B's, your Robin Thicks, um, your Hall and Oates, you were genuinely inspired by the music and genuinely inspired by your peers. And it showed in your work. And it showed in the love that artists had and the trust that artists had with you. And I don't think, I, I think to this day that would always be the case. So you look at an Eminem who um, is one of the biggest rappers of all time, and one time he won a Grammy for Rap Album of the Year, and when he went up, he put out a list of his and out of his pocket, and he named every rapper that came before him wow. as his inspiration, as his speech, and said thank you and walked off the stage. And with mm -hmm. something that genuine, and it comes off in your work, you're definitely going to be accepted because of the past of what's happened mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. um, music and in politics and things like mm -hmm. that. So I think you were definitely, with open arms, <laughs> open arms delayed, um, once you shown how genuine you was and how good your work was and your work was good because you were genuine and you were able to pull things out of artists. Um, one artist in particular you just mentioned that I'm a huge fan of and mm -hmm. I'm... Um, future doing work with is Keith Sweat. Yeah. And yeah. It, it was funny how we started with Aretha. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about Earth, Wind, and Fire. We briefly talked about Sheik, which is a full circle too. Yeah. But Keith, male-wise, was also someone who evolved soul music. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit of how, especially when you had his first interview, yeah. tell me how that <laughs> went from someone who was coming from Wall Street, was very nervous, and turned his debut album into a triple platinum classic. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I would I would probably, if Keith was sitting in the room with us now, I would be honest and tell him that, you know, based on the first interview, I wouldn't necessarily have expected him to have a third, not, and to be, not to be rude, but, you know, I used to interview a lot of new artists, a lot, because at that time in the 80s, there mm -hmm. were a lot of people being signed to different labels, right. and there was a lot of... You know, and of course we talk about the birth of New Jack Swing yes. and all that. You know, I mean the whole that whole movement. So he was, in a sense, you know, very much a part of that too. And uh, but I would not have 
predicted, and again, this isn't personal about Keith, that he would necessarily have a 30-plus year career because many of those artists unfortunately didn't. And they were, as is true of every era of all kinds of music, yes. you know, people are one-hit wonders and you kind of don't. I think that he just tapped into something um, I mean, certainly not in the interview. He was, he, he, he as it was not, but he was cool. I mean, he, he was articulate, but he was, he was a little no. I could, could tell, see that, you know, he wasn't used to doing it, in, doing interviews. It was right. like a new thing for him. Um, but I tell you what, I, I tell you what, I can remember. This is so funny you brought it up because I, I remember he was very. He, he there was a, a a little bit of shyness, not just a little bit, but he was very. Um, cordial he 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 wasn't like he wasn't um like oh this guy why he wasn't like he didn't he, he wasn't on the defensive he was very you know he wanted to talk about his record he wanted to talk about and he, and he was he was he was a nice guy i mean you know what i mean like a genuinely pleasant person to speak to gotcha. really and and then the music um just really it, it tapped into something i mean um, I, I was about to go into my imitation of I want her, but I think we'll save that for another day. <laughs> I want, I want her. Oh, they can't help it. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help myself. Sorry about that. But he just was, you know, and, and, and it, his sound was a, little, was a little different. And he was, you know, really, uh, I think part of it too was, um, I'm thinking of a couple of songs on that album. Um, uh, some Something Just Ain't Right. Something Just Ain't Right. And that, is that on, that's on that first that's album. That's on that right? album. And then... Uh, the duet with Jackie McGee's Make It Last Forever. Yeah. Yeah. That on the first one too? That was on yeah. the first one. That's you know, now I'm thinking back to it. Um because he represented a different generation of male R and B singers. And okay, how I say I'll say this in a way that that will put it in some context. So you've got your you've got your Early '80s male vocalists emerging, like Luther Vandross, you know, um, Freddie Jackson, kind of a little, little later, but but they were in a particular tradition, you could say. And then Keith was more like the the I would say almost like I'm how to say it so it doesn't sound rude, but he was kind of like the street version of Luther. That's exactly what he was, yes. Wow. That's exactly... Be, 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 and, and I don't think that's something wrong with too. that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, the fact, you know, Luther, you know, the way Luther would present himself on stage was very, you know, kind of, you know, a certain kind of style and a certain kind of way of, you know, having his show and the background singers and the, you know, the sequins and the all that. Right. And then you've got Keith who comes out and it's not that. And yet the, and, and Keith could sing, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he wasn't some, you know, you know, couldn't sing kind of person. He could sing. And I think those that's why I, I mentioned in particular uh, something just saying right and, 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 and make it last forever. Because for me, those were they're indicative of this isn't just some like one-off person right you know yes yeah. so, so i think that 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 was it and so i think and he was appealing to a particular audience that wasn't necessarily quite the luther audience does that does that communicate that makes a hundred percent what what happened in that era when keith came which is great on what you everything you just said because 
when we talked about how that 70s soul got interrupted a little bit and then it evolved into 80s soul, Keith was the beginning of how soul would react to the hip-hop movement. Because yeah. the hip-hop movement yes. came in yes. 84, yes. 85, 86, yes. and it wasn't going anywhere. And with mm-hmm. Keith being from New York, where hip-hop is from, with, Ted, with Teddy Riley's That's help, right. they right. took that and they, they took the hip-hop mold and kept soul music there. It was still the heart of it. So when you have songs like Make It Last Forever, he did a remake of I Want to Go Outside in the Rain. Yes, yes. He yes. kept that. And that's why that's why it sounds so street. That's why it was so street because he was of hip hop, mm-hmm. but he refused to take the R and B and the soul out of it. Right. And that meant a lot because that was the blueprint for a lot of things that came after it. Yeah, and, and as you're talking about it, Doran, I'm thinking about you know Guy, and I'm thinking yes. about Jodeci. Yes. I mean, you know, these are a little later, but still, I mean, not that far away. No, it was only a t- couple, couple of years. years exactly. Yeah. And they really authentically continued that whole R&B tradition. And because I, I did, you know, if I'm honest, which I always do try to be, you know, I had a little bit of a reticence around um, or, or, or reluctance around, you know, hip hop, well, rap and hip hop at the beginning, because I thought, well, you know, because I saw how I didn't see, well, actually what it was, I couldn't see who, how the tradition of the music and the singers that I had grown up with, and I couldn't see how they were going to survive because at, one, at some point, you know, rap and hip-hop really began to take over. Right. I mean, let's just be honest about it. Right. And then I was like, oh, no, you know, is there going to be any more? <laughs> and then along come, you know, the, the new Jack Swing people, you know, Keith and, and, and I mentioned Guy and... And Teddy Riley stuff, and, yes. and, and Jodeci, and you know all, th- that whole. There's a whole group of, of of artists who came along, who kept the R&B tradition alive, but they brought that hip. I mean, that's why people called Mary J. Blige the Queen of Hip Hop. Queen of Hip Hop, so soul because she she kind of did what Aretha did with soul. When the, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you had got into music because of Aretha. It was right before she signed Atlantic. Aretha was doing kind of standards on Columbia. That's right. And Jerry got with her at Atlantic and turned that into just this real soulful thing. Mm -hmm. With Mary, Mary sung, let's take this back 360. (laughs) Mary at her audition sung Anita Baker. I know. And she sung Sweet Love. And Andre saw what it was, and he turned that the same way Jerry did with Aretha. Yeah. The same way Anita did with Sade, yeah. he turned that into a hip-hop soul thing where the soul still has to be there, yeah. but we're going to put the hip-hop element in it, not only because of the audience, but because of who she was. She was a young kid. So oh, that yes. that really yes. just, that's why they call her the queen of hip-hop soul, because she carried that tradition on. I love talking to you and having your knowledge of it, because we get a lot of generational hate. We get mm-hmm. a lot of, oh, and I said that in the very beginning, and we're coming back 360 with that, too, is it was always my generation, or when we did this when I was growing up, or all oh, the music sucks now. It's not. It's evolving. It takes a minute, because yeah. from 78 to about 82, 83, it, um, that's when Prince and, and Rick James was the only one yeah. running things. Yeah. So they took the funk in the mainstream and was doing their thing, but then Soul ended up coming back into that's what right. the Whispers did and Lakeside oh, did and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah So it was the me. same thing, yeah. Yeah, Whispers, Lakeside, um, yes. Shalimar. I mean, Shalimar, all that, yes. Oh, man, that, that's like, you know, a whole other part. And also, and also being in L.A., 
being in Los Angeles at the time, you know, where Solar Records was. Yes. I mean, yeah, and then I saw the emotion of like the deal, even though you weren't from LA, you know, from 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 Ohio, right? And you know how, uh, you know, and then you know, Babyface first solo album, yes. And so you see the you know the the tradition of of R and B continuing with some different, obviously a different sometimes in different musical background and flavor. Uh, but I never was, I, I, because I guess maybe it's just who, who I kind of person I am. I don't, I don't be, I'm not like, Oh, you know, we've always got to keep doing the same thing. You know, it's going to be always traditional. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, you've got to move with the times. You, you've got to. Yeah, and, 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 and there's a couple of people I've got, to, I've got to just reference. I know this is probably like a 10-hour <laughs> podcast, but that's all right. We will do a part two for sure. But, but, for sure, but I was to say that, um, you know, the couple of um, particular uh, interviews I did, and, and I, I can't remember if they were for BR, well, well, one interview and one media coaching session. So I, I want to mention my first encounter with the aforementioned Mary J. Yes. So it's a great little short story. And it's a good intro because, again, it's an, you just have this thing of interviewing certain figures that are in charge of eras. Yeah, and I did, of course, I wouldn't know that. Right, at the time. exactly. So, so you got to picture this, Duran. you got to picture this. Okay, so here I am. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, again, living in Los Angeles, and I was in New York on a visit. And at that time, I started doing, and I, and I will say this publicly because I don't have any reason to not be proud of the fact that I pioneered media coaching, um, uh, in the late 80s or early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, um, for R&B artists. And I did that. Um, other people have gone on to become media coaches, but I did with the first person who approached um, actually um, Arista Records to do, uh, I, I came up with this idea and what, 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 you know, what that was born out of was a lot of the new artists had not had any training on how to do interviews. Yes. And they became very difficult to interview because they would just say yes, no, and it was kind of like, this is not going well. Right. So I formulated this idea based on the whole Motown tradition of, of media training their artists back in the 60s, the Supremes, and they had the whole school of training for artists how to do interviews. So I kind of took that model and adapted it. And so I started doing that, did guy Arista Jeff McBride and then Motown hired me to do another bad creation these little kids, little kids I, I was like Aisha, this kind of yeah. like this is like trial by fire you know and then I was in New York and I got a call um and it was from a lady called Kelly Haley who was mm -hmm. a publicist at Uptown and she said, you know, we've got this artist, Mary J. Blige, and the record's taken off and you know she, I know you're here if she does can we hire you to do some coaching with Mary? I said sure. So I go in the room, and, and and Mary's sitting there, and, you know, they say, this is David Nathan. You know, he's writes for Billboard. He's done blah, 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 blah. And she looks at me, and she kind of looks me up and down. I say, okay. So we sit down with a cassette, because that's how I did my media coaching. And Mary's kind of like, just kind of trying to stare me down, just kind of, you know, not very not very communicative. And I share with her what we're going to do. And it's all right. So we stopped doing it, doing things. And she just was not, I could see she was looking at me like, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say something that's very politically incorrect. So just, okay, podcast people, prepare. 
Yeah, I could see she was looking at me like, who's this old white guy? And I wasn't old, but I was older than her, right? I could see. I could just feel. That's what she was like, what? Who, who is this, right? She didn't say it, but it was just in how she was responding to me. It probably was how she was responding to old journalists, but I didn't know that. But I could just, so I finally, I thought, well, this is kind of silly because we're not getting anywhere with this. And I, I just l- looked her dead in the eyes and I said, are you all right? You know, because I'm like, I'm going to get paid. I didn't say this to her, but I knew I was going to get paid regardless of whether she got the coaching, she took it on or not. And she said, well, actually, I got the flu. I said, okay, well, so listen, we don't have to, listen, it's fine. We really don't have to continue to do this right now. If you're not feeling well, it's fine. It's really okay. And Mary, I guess by me just asking her like that, she sat up in the chair and then she started listening. And we finished the media coaching session. And um, we were supposed to do a part two we couldn't do because of her schedule the next day. And about a month later, when her record had really taken off, right, the album, like really, MCA had a big party for her in LA. And I went and, I, and she walked up to me and she said, thank you. I said, okay. She said, I just, I was listening to you. <laughs> I really was. She said, I want, I, I've, she had then started doing like real interviews. She said, and I really, I really took what you said and I've taken, yeah, I'm, 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 it was very helpful. And I thought, wow. And that was a, and I had, again, I couldn't have imagined uh, that Mary J. Blige would have had the astronomical kind of career she's had. I mean, yes. you know, and, and I still think about, you know, what it was like sitting there in the room with her and she was scared. Do you know what it was? Mostly she was scared. She didn't know how that she was going to, you know, she, like you said, you know, she told the story of going into a little phone, one of the little things where you record your voice um, and, and, and singing Sweet Love. Yeah. That was her audition tape. Yes. And, and, and so, you know, I, I know exactly, yeah. And so it was like, she was scared. She didn't know how to watch, you know, she was from, was she from Yonkers, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yonkers girl. Wow, yes, damn, sir. I've got good memory Yeah, for, for an older person. Anyway, so that's that. And the other one was, um, so what was it? That was, oh, the other one was, you know, I did have, at some point do some, I didn't do many rap, hip-hop artist interviews, but I did do one that stays very much in my, in my thinking was with LL Cool J. Yes. After he was already successful. Uh, and it, he, I think it was my first, I don't know if that was, for, I don't think that was for BRE. It might have been for BRE. I don't know who it was for, to be honest. I can't remember. But um, he was one of the really best interview subjects of that time period for me. Because it was really, it was like talking to some, I mean, it, it, you know, I wasn't necessarily a deep fan of, of rap and hip-hop I mean I was I didn't tell him that but I wasn't like you know I knew about it I knew different artists I knew certain songs and so on and pieces but but I really this is the way he came across in the interview just changed my whole way of thinking because he was so it was really great talking to him I mean, we talked about the industry we talked about music we talked about politics I mean we just I, I don't remember everything we talked about it, but I really really enjoyed talking to him okay. and that kind of changed a lot of my yeah my own like you know 
feelings about rap and hip hop and, and artists who I felt that you know they kind of had pushed aside our you know, R&B artists with some of them the mainstream ones were, were struggling so so yeah so those are my two the, yeah <laughs> <laughs> what I was having a conversation with a friend this morning and we were talking about new we it was just a subject of new rappers because mm-hmm. I grew up on hip hop so yes. I'm yes. definitely a kind of second generation hip hop um, yeah. yeah. mixed in with the first because I'm kind of old soulish and we were talking about the new rappers and we were saying oh well our parents were saying the same thing I said you know the difference our parents didn't grow up with hip hop our p- hip hop happened mm-hmm. either when they were grown or when they already had their taste in their music already. That's we true. grew up with hip hop. Right. And with a lot of stories that you tell, a lot of love that you have for it, what impresses me the most is you started the story with your love for Aretha, but you also had the knowledge of what the Beatles and Rolling Stone was. Absolutely. And you kept going all the way to, again, like I said, you interviewed. A lot of artists at not only the start of their careers, but the start of an era of the career that they were going into. Mm. Your impression of soul music today? <laughs> That's rough, man. I, I love <laughs> asking that question to someone that is just so historically great well, now. I don't know. And, and let's do let's do it this way. All right. From <laughs> what you've heard and what you like. That's even harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't... Hmm. It's interesting because I don't really relate to a lot of the music of today's artists that we would call soul music there you go. as soul music. I relate to them as contemporary R&B. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't quite, you know... I, I don't know that the term soul music, or, or I don't think of the soul artist. I mean, if you look at, I know this is probably a bad reference, but oh well. You know, if you look at the Grammy categories, for example, there's no traditional soul album. It's traditional R&B vocal performance or traditional, you know. So there's still people who use R&B rather than soul. So I can't, it's kind of hard for me to say that there are young or uh, uh, you know successful or current soul music artists there are artists that are current that are that i like that are soulful and do continue a certain degree of the r&b tradition now if you're talking about like very very recent that's going to take a little minute for me to think about but i do but i do think but you know what um there are people i'm out here that i that i think wow you know i think of um uh Bruno Mars, right? Yeah, is a good example. Uh, I think of, um, you know, probably not quite of this same group that you're talking about, but I go back to like, you know, Beyonce. I mean, you know, a lot of times people bash. Shouldn't be saying on the podcast. You know, bash Beyonce. She just kind of sold out and da 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 da. But you know, I think about. You know, I remember seeing. You know, uh, the film that Beyonce was in, in which she was to do with Chess Records, and where she was. Supposedly playing Edda James or mm-hmm. some, you know, and and you know she, uh, you know, singing at, at last, and I, you know, I, I I give you know respect to the the artists of that period too, who who I think so, but of current like right now, right now. But Bruno Mars, Bruno Mars is a great example yeah. of someone. I um names that are always tossed around are 
the Bruno Mars. Um, a lot of it's still neo soul, so it's the yeah. D'Angelo's, yes. Maxwell's, yes. Erykah Badu's, yeah. of those, Anthony of, Hamilton's. Of that group, of yes, that sir. Group, of that yes, group. sir. Yes, that's sir. A, you made it a little easier for me because I was like, <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay, then you know what? Give me a chance to rephrase the question. All right, then. So we went from the classic laid down soul era to how disco was basically transferred into the 80s soul era to where New Jack Swing, which adopted hip-hop into soul, created. And then in 97 is when we got, let's go back, 95 to 97, we got debut albums from D'Angelo, Maxwell, and Erykah Badu. Correct. What was, did you get a chance to speak with any of them? And if you didn't, what was your impression of them? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, um... The first thing I want to say is that that I was very happy to see the the emotion. And a lot of those I don't particularly like being called neo soul, yes, or retro soul, yes. And uh, for the purposes of, of 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 reference, that's how we would I could refer to them. Yeah, I, I was so happy to see that group of artists begin to achieve popularity because they again were t- continuing a tradition that really I think for a little while we didn't think would be continuing because of the the dominance of rap and hip-hop. So I think that they were very, very, very important part of the continuation of that. I, I include in it some people just before the group that you just mentioned. Um, you know, I think of, of, of Layla Hathaway yes. and, and, and Kenny Lattimore yes. and the just whole group of, of, of really more what I would call, you know, the Quiet Storm, um, you know, real vocalists, you know, yes. I think of them, um, you know, and, and, and had a chance to definitely interview them at the beginnings of their careers. I mean, I was later Hathaway's media coach at the beginning of her career. And, okay. I, was, and I say that proudly, not like arrogant or like big headed. Well, it's, it's a great m- proud thing because yeah, Layla yeah, started in 91 yeah, and man, she's she, winning yes. Grammys four years in a row now. Yeah. And yeah. I, I love that, you know, you know, she's a studied musician. It's not just like, yeah, yeah, she's the daughter of Donnie Hathaway, and she's also a studied musician. She, she, you know, and what I loved about, I mean, to begin with, she was, again, very nervous about doing interviews because she thought everyone was going to talk to her about her dad, and so I had to really kind of start to, you know, bring out who is who is Layla, you know. And, and anyway, the point being, so with her and Kenny Lasmore, and then also... Babyface. I mean, we can't forget Kenny Edmonds. Yes. I mean, really keeping those traditions going and alive, and I'm sure we're missing people. So the answer to your question is, um, in that group, uh, yeah, Rasan Patterson. Yeah. So the people I interviewed, you know, uh, Rasan and all the ones I just mentioned, Layla, um, uh, Kenny Lattimore, and um, Babyface, and then, you know, going on to... Um, uh, Maxwell, I didn't interview Maxwell at, at the very beginning of his career, but I did do an interview with him actually qu- within the last f- 10 years, I think. So we're in 2020. So right, we're which bit, is good for him because that's, yeah. that's about two albums. That's <laughs> 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 10 years. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> yes. Him, uh, I remember seeing the first D'Angelo. I, I remember seeing D'Angelo do a, a, a showcase at a conference in Philadelphia just before his first album came out, and that was for the International Association of African American Music. He was being showcased there, and I remember seeing him sitting at the piano, you know, just him at the piano, and I was like, I'm thinking now, now I'm starting to think of other people like Brian McKnight. I mean, Brian McKnight, man, was just like 
phenomenal. And then, of course, take six was a little bit before that. But the point being that these are all people that were keeping that tradition alive. And so, and Erica Badu, and of course, Jill Scott. I mean, there's so many. Um, so who who beca- Tony Braxton? I mean, we, we you know this is, we could go on for a long time. Yeah. Asha, you know who to begin with. I wasn't quite sure about how you know. I, Asha, I hope you're not listening. But you know, it just you know that he became to me a proper a proper artist after about album two or three. Oh, this is the thing. That is a common sentiment. Yeah, it's it's like he it's, was real, like a yes. proper. It's funny that. With Keith Sweat, Mary, and Usher, you kind of had the same impressions. Yeah. And they ended up having these real big careers. But what I never heard you say was, I really liked them. I didn't see how big it was, but I saw the talent. Yeah. And that, I think that means a lot. And that goes back to being accepted within that journalist Absolutely. Um, yeah. canon and being held mm-hmm. up there with those guys because they know with your passion and your history and your knowledge you would come true and you would see through and then again to pull the best out of people. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things I want to say about that. Uh, I, I, mean, I remember one of the, uh, you know, it's going to sound strange when I say it, but uh, one of the people who really, um, uh, I felt humbled by what they said uh, was uh, Raphael Sadiq. Yes. When Raphael Sadiq's, uh, which album was it? It was about two albums ago. Maybe it was two albums. Yeah, it was about two albums ago. He, he had this big album on Columbia. What was it called? The Way I See It. Yes, The yes. Way I See It. And the Columbia publicist hired me to do his bio for that album. And I loved the album. I absolutely loved it. So I was writing, and I interviewed him and so on. And then I um, got to see him. I was in D.C. on a visit, and, and I went to you know, got to see a show. And, you know, I, I didn't. The interview I did with him was on the phone, so I hadn't actually wasn't face to face. But I had interviewed him as part of Tony, Tony, Tony. But anyway, so I said, you know, um, you know, wrote your bio. He said, yeah, I know. He said, uh, I, he said, um, yeah, I chose you to write the bio. I was like, okay, because I it kind of took because I thought well, the publicist is the one who was, you know. He said, no. He said, so I, I know your work. He said, "No, no, I'm pointing this album was, and I, I wanted to make sure that the, I, I got the right, the right person." So, that w- that really that really kind of like, that was like a big that was a big moment for me. Like I felt, wow. And and so the other thing I want to say, because I know we're gonna wrap up, so I want I, I just want to say one other thing, Duran, which because I think this is probably what you would say about yourself too. See, the music for me, R&B, soul music has never been like this academic study. It's like the passion comes from the music being as lived. I, I, this isn't music that I put on, a, put on a shelf and say, you know, and, and admire. This is a music that has helped me through all the situations in life that human beings go through, you know, breakups, crushes, heartbreaks, you know, people passing, I mean, all the, you know, struggling, trying to earn a living, I mean, wondering who's going to, how I'm going to get the rent, you know, exploits, which we won't talk about on the air right now. (laughs) But, you know, all the things that make it the music of real life. And I think that is probably 
what I'd want people to know, that, that, that I have never looked at it as some academic study. I might have written in a way that sometimes it you know, showed my knowledge, but it's, it's an as-lived music for me. This is I, how I live. I agree. I, um, when I started working on different projects, so I work with certain artists, and they ask my background on certain things, and the one thing they're really shocked on is, at my age, how do I know so much? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's that soul music is part of the black culture. Absolutely. And with it being a part of the black culture and the way that you live, the music is the soundtrack to the things we go through. Absolutely. And you touched on how, why that's such an international thing, um, especially in London with the working class, and we have that here. We call those different classes, but we have that here. It's the music of life. It's the soundtrack That's of right, life. Man. I can go even deeper with it going into 1800s of what mm -hmm. my people went through in 1800s. It was always the soundtrack of life of um, instead of laughing to cry, instead of crying, you sung instead of cried, and you came up with these melodies, you came up with these songs that kind of, helped your soul to cure your soul man. and that's really what it is so even though i was nine eight seven really listening to things that was 10 years older than me of, of the subjects i probably didn't understand i still felt it mm -hmm. and as i got older i'm totally in tune with everything that's going on today in music mm -hmm. but i think i understand and i can appreciate things more than people my age because there's still a lineage and there's still a direct track to what was. Absolutely. And um, I think that's why I'm so fascinated of talking to you because that that kind of solidifies and verifies for me that, yeah, that's a, that's 100% what it is. It's not um, a book that I read that told me, okay, this is how I'm supposed to feel, which I hope you do come with a book. But it's a thing that is something you feel. And if you don't feel it, and you're trying to go off someone else's feeling, you're trying to go on a trend, you will not last in any business, no. especially the music business, especially in soul. It's brilliant, man. David Nathan, I am honored <laughs> to sit here and speak with you today, and um, I'm all the more wiser for it. Good, and I'm hoping that we'll, this will be the beginning of doing some more like this because this has been one of the absolutely wonderful conversations I've had really and and I really I, I really mean that sincerely it, it's just you know I think that what we are epitomizing here is that that generations you know it, it isn't generation it, it, yes it's generational and then again it isn't it's about you know uh, and, and it's fascinating to for me to hear you with the references that you make to to people who I've had the opportunity and 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 privileged to work with, and just yeah, it is. It's a great feeling. I, I, I wouldn't have had any other life. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking the time, sir. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on My Classic Soul. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And make sure to visit us at My Classic Soul on Facebook and at SoulMusic.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Bethany Dawson.